Good afternoon, everybody, uh, and welcome. Uh, my name is Nick Davies, and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government. On behalf of the Institute, thank you very much for coming to this event today on how we can improve hospital performance. This is a topic that the Institute has done a lot of work on. Uh, it will be covered in our annual performance tracker report that is coming out at the end of October uh, and in the summer in partnership with Public First and the Health Foundation uh, we published a report on hospital productivity as well so I'm delighted to host today's event. Hospital performance is historically poor. Uh, elective waiting lists are at record levels Hundreds of thousands of people are waiting more than four hours in A&E each month, and ambulance response times uh, for conditions like strokes can stretch to more than an hour. What's particularly worrying is that hospitals have not been able to return to the activity levels of pre-pandemic. So, for example, they completed uh, fewer elective cases and outpatient appointments in 2022-23 than they did in 2019-20. And that's despite a significant increase in both funding and staff over that period. So how can these productivity problems be fixed? Do hospitals have suitable funding and performance management incentives? Are they making the best use of new technology and innovative medicines? Uh, how can the NHS retain uh, experienced staff, uh, including the ones that are on strike today? Uh, and does the NHS uh, and hospitals have enough beds for the patients that need them? Uh, to discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by this panel. Uh, so from left to right, we have uh, Dr. Caroline Johnson, member of the Health and Social Care Select Committee. Uh, Rachel Wolf, uh, founding partner at Public First, a co-author of the Conservative 2019 Election Manifesto and even more consequentially co-author of our report on hospital productivity uh, in the summer. Uh, we have Dr Leila McKay, Director of Policy at NHS Confederation and Lord James Bethel, uh, who was Minister for Innovation in the Department of Health and Social Care for much of the pandemic. Each of our speakers are going to make opening remarks. I will then ask a few questions uh, to the panel before opening up to questions from the audience. We will be live tweeting the event from the at IFG events account. Uh, we'll be using the hashtags uh, IFGCons23 and CPC23. Uh, so feel free to tweet along as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to come to our first speaker, Rich Wolf. Uh, thank you. Um, and this is obviously a fairly big topic, and I suspect that we could all make completely different points, all of which will be valid and all of which will not be sufficient to talk about this. But I will I will do my best. Um, the reason that uh, we spoke to the IFG, Sam Friedman and I, about doing this report was because my company does a lot of focus groups and polling on health. And one of the things that interested me was that... Um, people were absolutely convinced that that 350 million on the side of a bus had disappeared and had gone nowhere near the NHS. And people were convinced that all the promises in the 2019 manifesto uh, had also been unfulfilled. There weren't more nurses and more doctors and all the things that we promised. And um, the truth seemed to me much more challenging than that, which is more than 350 million a week extra has gone into the NHS. It might not be enough, it might be too late, but more money has gone in. There are a lot more people in hospitals. And yet mm. both people's experience I don't think the ambulance is going to come. I think I might be dying on the street. I don't think I can get an appointment. Um, mm. And the data, which Nick has uh, just talked about, suggested that output was very poor. 
and what was going on. And we came to um, sort of three sets of conclusions in our report. And, and I will say that our, our report was very much focused on what was happening in hospitals and why wasn't it working better? And I think there are very big questions about whether that ought to be the right question long term, whether we need to shift where um, where uh, treatment happens. But we were recognizing an electoral reality, which is when the system feels like it's on fire, you have to deal with a system that's on fire. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, the first, which many of you will be very familiar with, is that at the same time as we have very substantially increased frontline staffing in hospitals, and I wrote this into the um, 2019 manifesto, um, we have not uh, increased investment in capital and particularly in bed capacity and diagnostic capacity. And it does seem to be the case that one of the things that is going wrong is that staff cannot be optimally efficient because they don't have the equipment and the beds um, to be optimally efficient in. And I do think that one of the challenges that we face in health, as in many other areas, is um, inconsistency, unpredictability, and relatively low levels of investment. That is true in transport, and it is true in health. So that, that's the first thing. The second is that there are, um, while we have very substantially increased the number of people in the NHS, there's some evidence that what is happening is you are losing a lot of experienced people and then constantly putting newer people um, in, and that, um, that can uh, decrease efficiency. But also in our desire to increase frontline staff, we've actually let the NHS be one of the most undermanaged systems yeah. in the world. It's very relatively undermanaged relative to other comparators in the private sector. Um, and it is definitely undermanaged compared to other health systems. And I don't mean NHS England in this. I think you wouldn't let me put it in in the end. But I, I um, you know, NHS England has got a lot bigger. Um, but people actually on the floor, the ward managers, the people who are responsible for making sure that flow is happening and finding bottlenecks are thin on the ground. And, and it also this is more anecdotal, but whenever we went and talked to hospitals, it seemed very clear that the people who were responsible for doing analysis and figuring out where the problems were felt they were spending more and more of their time feeding the beast, reporting upwards rather than having control on the ground. And then the third thing, um, which uh, came out of one of, I think, most interesting studies on management, uh, there's, a, there's a group at LSE that have done most of the most interesting management uh, data analysis across different parts of the economy um, over the last 10 years. And they did some work looking at whether when you increase the number of NHS managers, you got better um, output. And they found to their surprise that unlike pretty much every other health system and every other part of the economy, it didn't. And their theory was, which seems to me entirely plausible, is because NHS managers are now so constrained there's such a very high combination of different targets and incentives. We have dialed back so substantially the freedoms that formed the core of the kind of Blairite model on hospitals um, that there's very little they can do to improve things. So I think the third thing that we found was that the complexity of targets and incentives, the constraints, including on things like capital expenditure on hospitals, are now so large, it's very difficult for people on the ground to make a difference. And this probably contributes to low morale and my original background is in schools and one of the things i find quite interesting is that in school reform 
we took the kind of basic Blairite model and accelerated it. We did academies and we did free schools. And I think there is very good evidence that school standards have gone up over the last uh, 13 years. We do much better in international tables than we did um, at the beginning of the parliament. In health, partly because Lansley was so utterly catastrophic, I think we've done the opposite. And I think we've abandoned that basic idea of autonomy and control uh, at a lower level um, and the ability to invest. So um, the good news, I suppose, is that some of those things don't require vastly more money, but they do require money to be allocated differently and they do require a different approach to who controls it. Um, and I would like to see more of that from you, whoever writes the next manifesto. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, we're going to go to Dr. Caroline Johnson next. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that was a very good summary for, for the most part. Um, I was going to give some, some more examples. First of all, I would, I would say things are, to some extent, more uh, more efficient than they used to be. I was thinking back to being an SHO. I should say I'm a consultant paediatrician as well. Thinking back to my time as an SHO, a senior house officer, when I would need to um, take an x-ray of a patient and I would have to get a piece of paper card and fill it in and walk down to the department and find a radiologist with the piece of card because they didn't have a bleep because they didn't work where the lead lined rooms to hand that in to take a paper fill a plastic film bag with the x-ray on to view on a, on a viewer then I'd have to find the patient's notes to present to my consultant which was one folder which could be anywhere in the hospital and the army of people that were employed simply to walk around the hospital looking for these plastic films and these um, paper notes and much of that is much more efficient than it used to be um, I think one of the things that wasn't mentioned in, the, in, the, in, in what Rachel said was the effect of the pandemic. And one of the most stark figures for me was the figure affecting women needing a gynecological appointment. And I'm told that before the pandemic took place, we were expecting 54 women, 54 women in total, were waiting for an appointment for more than 18 months for a gynecologist. By the time the pandemic had run its course, there were 45,000 women in the same position. And I think just looking at the scale of the challenge that the pandemic has posed is something that shouldn't be ignored when we look at how well the NHS is doing, because actually the NHS is offering more appointments to more people. It's doing many more things than it was doing before, but it's under a, a huge amount of pressure to keep up with, with that. The other thing is we've, we have, as you said, put an awful lot more money into the NHS. But I've, I frequently say to successive ministers and secretaries of state, you can't do a knee replacement. If I give you a billion pounds, you still can't do a knee replacement. So the, giving the NHS more money, if it doesn't have more doctors and more nurses and more clinical staff with the skills to do the procedures you need, and orthopaedic procedures are the longest waiting list that we have, then the money isn't going to be able to be spent on achieving the outcomes that you want. We spend too much time, for me, looking at the outcome, the, in, the inputs rather than the outcome. So, and that isn't the NHS's fault because it's not the NHS that trains um, the doctors. The doctors are trained um, through, through um, the Health Education England. So it was a separate, it was until recently a separate uh, budget. We also used to need to therefore to use those staff that we do have that can perform these procedures much more efficiently. Um, I spoke to an orthopedic surgeon from a major teaching hospital in England who told me he does hips and knee replacements. He told me he does four or four operations per day in the NHS in an eight-hour shift. And yet, in the same eight hours at the, the um, local um, private hospital that he goes to once a week, he will do six or seven. 
Now, some will argue there's a case makes difference, but a case the case makes difference of the slightly more obese or higher anaesthetic risk patient is not accounting for the difference of more than 50% in productivity. And we need to look more closely at why he's spending time waiting for things to happen so that he can get on with his operation. We also need to look at the other things that take up lots of consultants and, others, and other professionals' time, collecting data for somebody else that's of no use. Why do I need, when I do my clinic on a Friday, to collect data saying when the patient went into the consulting room, when they left the consulting room, when they went in to get weighed, when they came out from being weighed, when they arrived in the waiting why is it? Why do I need to collect all that data? What, what, what use is it? What is it useful? Why do we have to do all this mandatory training? The um, COVID pandemic... There was a big fuss about all the mandatory training that the um, vaccinators were going to have to do, and it was cancelled. Why do I get shown pictures as a consultant of somebody with two defibrillator pads on their abdomen and get asked to, ty to, to type in whether or not that that's the right placement? Why do I get shown a picture of a pe person sat like this and asked if that's the right position for a patient that's unconscious? Because to be honest, if I can't answer that question, why am I there in the first place? But these are the sort of things that we're asking people to do. And they may sound really, really silly and really, really trivial, and they are, but they are taking up lots and lots and lots and lots of clinicians' time across the country, wasting time that could be spent fixing someone's knee, putting someone's shoulder in, all of those different things that they could be doing that they're not doing. Um, what can government do? It can improve budget clarity because we're not giving people budget information in enough time to make sensible uh, long-term decisions by giving people the information at the last minute we're not we're not doing that um, we are doing some good things in splitting up acute and elective work so that less elective work gets cancelled at the last minute um, we aren't tackling dna terribly effectively and i think i don't think charging is necessarily the right answer but we do need to tackle that and there are lots of things we can do digitally as we now have electric electronic um, x-rays we please to know and electronic requesting and the GPs have electronic prescribing, but if if but if we use virtual beds, AI reporting, and electronic prescribing more effectively, we can reduce the amount of time that clinicians spend doing things that they don't need to do. And then the other thing I would just just mention, because I would appreciate others want to speak, is um, accountability. Um, how managers are held accountable, because if you look at the tr there's quite a lot of variation across trusts. There's a presumption. The NHS is equally the same across the tr across all different trusts, and it's not. Some trusts perform extremely well, and some trusts don't. The, number, the weights in A&E are concentrated in particular trusts, and it's not all about the type of trust that they are. So we need to look at holding those people who run those trusts accountable for why they've got the longer weights, the longer A&E waiting times, and such like. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to our third speaker, Bob Denver. Thank you. Well, I, I'm going to apply the Dr. Wolf principle and try and uh, supplement um, the extremely good contributions uh, from Rachel and Caroline just there with, a, with some, some thoughts that build on what was said. Um, because a lot of it did, did absolutely resonate with me. One of, one of the things that um, we should definitely reflect on with the NHS is the culture of the NHS. I've said this now three times today at three different panels. Forgive me if, if you've had to sit through any of that again. It was very interesting during, during the pandemic when um, when by and large people in the hospitals were incredibly long hours under very, very difficult circumstances, often in extremely uncomfortable clothing, uh, putting, and, and, and went through extremely traumatic experiences. We did a uh, employee uh, across the NHSE uh, estate, we did an employee engagement, um, which had this slightly unusual um, uh, objective of finding out what went well in the first wave. Obviously lots of things didn't go well, but what had gone well. And the feedback was, was really, really striking. 
it was not as the cynics had predicted that people thought that the free parking or the Friday night pizzas were good. It was that for the first time in many people's careers, they felt a sense of liberation from the person with the clipboard standing at their shoulder, marking their performance, who might make a career-limiting decision about whether they had done it correctly or not. And that people felt that they could use their professional qualifications and training to make decisions on their own and didn't need to be second-guessed uh, by the system. And one of the reasons why we saw such high velocity of innovation and why we saw uh, hospitals adapt in such an agile way is that we gave clinicians uh, of all levels a huge amount of latitude in how they responded to the emergency. It was a burning platform, so people, that was the only way we could have possibly responded. And people really stepped up to it, and they, uh, and they, they found a lot of satisfaction from it. That is in contrast with the culture problems that I think we have uh, in, a, in a lot of our hospitals. And they may well be linked to what uh, Rachel um, was talking about in terms of the uh, top-down uh, instructions and targets and uh, guidance that comes, uh, that constrains people's lives. But there is also um, a culture that is extremely hierarchical, sometimes bullying by all accounts, highly misogynistic, sometimes racist, and often extremely uncomfortable. The satisfaction of people who work in hospitals is often extremely low. Now, some hospitals are fantastic and everyone's very happy. An awful lot are not. And people talk about, very, a very common refrain is, I love my work, I just hate going to work. And that is a prevailing culture in a lot of hospitals. And it's not possible to run a productive, agile, uh, efficient organization uh, if that is the prevailing culture. Um, one of the things that I was always struck by uh, as a minister um, uh, in relation <coughs> to what Rachel said was that there was a lot of interventions that were input-focused, waiting lists being the most obvious example, not outcome-focused. And when we were thinking about the health and care system in the round, uh, both the people arriving and people leaving, it isn't focused on the overall population health, and people are rarely measured on things like healthy longevity. Uh, instead, they are measured on uh, actions and, and industrial uh, metrics. And that, that, I think, is related to the culture problem because uh, it doesn't suggest a lot of mission uh, around action rather than objective. And also, um, it means that uh, very quickly you can have perverse decision-making and illogical um, management allocation of resources. Um, and, that, and that leads me uh, to my final point, which is one of the best ways we could improve hospital performance is to reduce the pressure on hospitals. And what I mean by that is uh, three main ways of doing that. Firstly, is through the front door. And there are an awful lot of people who turn up uh, at emergency departments who could have found solutions in, in a great many other better places. And they were either frustrated or, uh, or, or misguided in turning up into the hospital. And, and very obviously, it's the person who has a, uh, um, a concern that leads to a no actual clinical response for, uh, for when they go into the hospital. Now, they may not be wrong to have sought some kind of medical advice, but they may have, for instance, have got it from a pharmacy, a GP, uh, from 111, uh, uh, or even from the internet. And there's a huge proportion of people who are walking into hospitals who shouldn't have been there in the first place. And then out the back door, 
And we know that there are people in beds who should be in care. And the uh, pressure on hospitals is exacerbated tremendously. This isn't a marginal point. This is a fundamental point by the shaky nature of our care system. The two things are inexorably linked. And uh, there were attempts to fix the care system. Uh, there was a brave political effort in 2017, which hit the Conservative Party very badly indeed, as many in this room will remember. But we've got to get back to fixing care because we'll never fix hospitals uh, if we don't uh, fix care. Uh, um, and then thirdly, um, is the overall um, focus and a necessary pivot to prevention uh, in dealing with the upstream. And that upstream might be primary prevention in terms of better community diagnostics, getting diagnostics into the home, catching disease earlier, pre-treating it, making sure that these people never ever need to go to a hospital. Or it might be tertiary prevention in terms of solving for junk food, moldy homes, toxic workplaces, addictions, um, all the reasons why so much of our disease uh, is caused uh, in the first place. So those are my, my, three, uh, my three thoughts. Um, uh, Outcome-based metrics uh, rather than inputs. Uh, solving the culture of hospitals, which is a very sensitive subject, but one that needs to be grappled with. Uh, and then thirdly, pivoting to prevention uh, in a way that uh, improves the health of the nation. Thank you very much. And now our final speaker, Dr. Leila McCain. Thank you very much. And uh, what to say after um, after three um, such clear um, laying out of, of, of what, the, what the issues are. So perhaps I might just summarize uh, the five key levers that, that I see. And I think that they can all be summarized by if we want to fix the pressure on hospitals, it's not really got that much to do with the hospitals. Um, so my first point, um, as Lord Bethel really clearly puts, is prevention. Pivoting to prevention is key. Um, I think that we see, particularly in these very challenging times, that the government has this tendency to equate health policy and NHS policy. NHS policy is part of the wider health policy, and so much of health has got nothing at all to do with the NHS. Yeah. So really, yeah, being, yeah. really being able to, um, to double down on that. Um, and just as you were speaking there, I thought what, an extra point of that is perhaps how do we empower the ICSs who have been set up partially to really drive uh, benefits and improvements in population health, but their purpose is often diverted by, by the dramas of the day, uh, the winter crisis, the, um, the industrial action, all these various things that are happening that really requires them to think in the here and now and frankly it'd be very helpful if they were able to assume the purpose to which um, people have been appointed to these roles which is which is to improve population health the next one again others have said it is um, investing in the community um, it's better for patients to get care where appropriate close to their home it's better for hospitals in terms of capacity it's better for the economy we just published a report last week that showed that um, investing in um, care in the community can bring about, <laughs> if you invest one pound, it can bring up to 14 pounds of, um, of economic benefit back. So there's a real, there's all sorts of arguments for this, but of course here we are with our, with our legacy structures and systems and organizations, and it is difficult to make that pivot. It takes, it takes a bit of braveness to, to, to figure out how to do that. It takes a bit of crossover during a transition, but the opportunities are huge and we need to look at them as 
Lord Devil says, including how do we actually seize the digital opportunities here uh, to make this a reality. Um, then the third one is capital. And that's, as we've heard others say, um, if we want our hospitals to be productive, we need to give them the tools with which to be productive. And capital deepening has been shown again and again to be a key tool of productivity. We know there's more than 11 billion pounds of what we call a maintenance backlog. So to fix leaking roofs that are causing operating theatres to be closed when they could be used to reduce the elective backlog, fixing equipment, all those sorts of things. Um, that investment is necessary because without it, it's not possible for hospitals to achieve the productivity that's being asked of them. And then, of course, there's workforce. <laughs> I said I had five points. I'll split it into two because one is, one is NHS and one is social care. With NHS, I think many of us are very relieved to see that the long-promised um, long-term workforce plan has, has materialised, but really all eyes now are on, is it going to be implemented? Is the NHS going to be supported and empowered to make it a reality? It's very hard to be productive when there's still round about 120,000 vacancies. And as we heard, often those are in very key, um, key specialties and levels of seniority. And then, as I said, finally, social care workforce. That if we talk about vacancies in the NHS, the situation is more difficult within social care. And we really need to see some kind of appropriate version of a social care long-term workforce plan because the current approach isn't sustainable and the impact is meaning that hospitals for all their best efforts, are really constrained in whether or not they can be productive. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to pick up on a, a point that I think most of the panellists have made, which is one of the ways we can improve performance of hospitals is by spending money elsewhere in the system. And I think most people who work in the health and care space would agree, whether it's uh, adult social care, whether it's uh, community services, whether it's uh, primary care services, and yet, what happens is that acute services continue to hoover up the money, they get their biggest increases, because that's the bit of the system that the public understands best. So, Lord Bethel, first, if we know what the answer is, how can we make it happen in government? How can ministers yeah. make that difficult decision to make it happen? So I think a lot of people need to have a slightly higher risk uh, one, one problem we have, which stems from the Lansley reforms, is that the NHS itself is a black box, which politicians cannot really reach into very easily. Uh, it is legally protected. It isn't possible for Secretary of State to send a memo and say, could you please move this money from here to there very easily. Uh, we have to take uh, clinical direction and the advice of um, NHS directors extremely seriously indeed. And to breach that direction, uh, and to take the political risk of saying uh, that money will be moved from one place to another is, is very frightening and, and dangerous. Uh, I've seen this, for instance, in um, the Community Diagnostic Hubs programme, which was envisaged as a way of getting diagnostics out of the hospital estate and onto the high street. It, it envisaged spare retail space in somewhere like the Arndale Centre being turned over to 
places where serology or simple tests, radiology, could typical radiology could take place. And instead, the money has been hoovered up uh, to buy MRI scanners for acute hospitals. Uh, and 90% uh, of the clinical um, diagnostic hubs that have been built are in the car parks or spare buildings of existing hospitals. And as far as I know, only one of them, Newcastle, is actually in a piece of retail space. That's an indication of the kind of um, magnetic pull on cash that the uh, alphas that run the uh, acute hospital systems have uh, on the budgeting system. So my short answer to your question is, both the uh, uh, NHS senior uh, management and the politicians need to show some courage and believe that prevention will actually work and that it will reduce the pressure on hospitals in the long term. Caroline, would you agree with that? And where's the, on the politician side, where is the barrier? Is it, is it the politicians in DHSE or is it the people in the treasury who are unconvinced by the case for prevention? Well, I think the, the, the select committee are doing an inquiry into prevention at the moment. It's quite a big piece of work with quite a number of evidence sessions, which we've not finished completing yet. So who knows what the report will say. Um, the economics of it, of it are interesting because, of course, the reality is that we will all ultimately die. We will all ultimately get ill and get something that needs treating by the health service at some point. So if we prevent one illness, we will ultimately get another. So we'll be need treating for that. So have you have you reduced cost or delayed cost or have you extended cost because the later costs are more expensive than the earlier cost might otherwise have been? Um, so I think the economics of it are more complicated than perhaps we expected. But the morality of it, of course, is that we want to prevent people getting ill because it's unpleasant and uncomfortable and painful to be ill. And we want people to be ill as little as, as we possibly uh, can be. In terms of prevention, though, we, we, we all know that we're supposed to eat terribly well drink terribly well, avoid high quantities of alcohol, not smoke, not vape, exercise 150 minutes a week, etc, etc. The reality is most of us don't. And I'm not sure that, you know, in terms of what can government do to help that, um, there then comes this debate between the nanny state of, you know, should we ban sweets from being next to the tills? Or can people who are grown-ups choose whether they want to buy them or not? And that... Um, that's quite a difficult challenge. I've been working quite a lot recently on vaping because I'm very worried about youngsters getting addicted to nicotine. And one of the key campaigns I've been running at the moment is trying to uh, get rid of these disposable vapes and the colours and flavours that are so attractive to children because I worry that we are storing up a huge health problem for young people addicted to a new form of uh, nicotine over the next few years. But I think... Um, the prevention agenda as a whole is well beyond the NHS and well beyond the NHS budget. And that's perhaps one of the challenges because the, the, the Treasury's got to take money out of the housing budget or the transport budget or um, the education budget to use to reduce the health budget. And why is it necessarily the incentive for individual sectors of state to do that? Nick, do you mind if I just come back on the economics? No, of course. Um, is right. We are all going to die. And there is some disease which you can't possibly... Uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, at least a quarter of disease is just uh, genetic, comes out of out of circumstance rather than any environment or, or uh, behaviour. But the cost of someone who is repeatedly ill and who carries many comorbidities and who in the last 20 years of their life lives with several chronic diseases is much, much higher than someone who is basically ill and treats their disease as they go along 
uh, and dies in a relatively healthy state. We have six million people with diabetes. I don't know who can tell me that that isn't a cost to the country that we should and could easily avoid. And those, the money spent treating and caring for people with diabetes, a liver transplant costs a million pounds. That money is a complete waste and should be spent uh, more productively uh, in our health system. Uh, Leno, I want to come to you next. Obviously, it's partly on politicians. It's also partly a question for ICBs, who are now holding the purse strings. I was at a roundtable earlier on palliative care, and the hospice sector was saying how there's now a massive shortfall uh, this year in their um, income because the funding they've received from ICBs hasn't um, kept pace with their cost pressures. What do you think it will take for ICBs to allocate more of their funding to non-acute settings? I think it'll take a few things. One will be the political confidence to let local leaders lead. There's so much drive for a whirl of targets in order to reassure everyone that things are going in the right direction. Those tend to often not be targets of outcome, but targets of process, which really constrains leaders at a local level and what they can do and what decisions they can make in what sort of prioritization they might want to do because they have to demonstrate that they've done X number of procedures or whatever it may be. Now, we hear from ICS leaders all the time and they tell us how much they, they really value the, the ability to have that flexibility to, to make those decisions and ask us to call on their behalf for fewer targets and for those targets to be what do you actually want the outcome to be rather than the micromanagement of how are you going to get there so that they can make decisions that are right for their populations. I would say that slightly attached to that is the other thing that ICS leaders tell us, which is more long-term funding. The NHS has a <laughs> particularly cursed with quite a lot of short-term funding. Um, quite often, bits of funding will appear throughout the year, have to be spent rather rapidly on very specific things in a way that can be quite problematic for people. <laughs> and actually, what would make things easier for really planning for what your population needs and how you're going to deliver it is both that freedom to actually decide how you're going to deliver it and then the financial, the understanding of your financial situation in the longer term so that you can figure out are you actually going to be able to fund it? Where are you going to really strategically put that money? And at the moment, those two things are pretty hard to grasp. Rachel, I want to talk a bit more about the, the politics of this. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, in the 2019 manifesto, there were some kind of high profile numerical targets for staff, 6,000 more GPs, 50,000 additional nurses. You also do a lot of kind of focus groups and polling as well. Do you think that is the kind of the level of promise that is likely to get through to the public? Or do you think a political party could make a more kind of mission-based pledge? So it is definitely true that when you ask people what they want in the NHS, what they want is more people. It's not a coincidence that uh, we put this in the 2019 manifesto. It's not a coincidence that Labour are planning to put more frontline staff into their manifesto. It is what people say. And I think you, I agree with everything that's been said, but I think you do have to recognise that it is politically 
unbelievably difficult to say you are going to reduce hospital funding when people think hospitals are on there are not working right like it's it's very hard to say i know you're waiting four hours for the ambulance it's now going to be five hours but don't worry in 10 years it's going to be way less because we're going to have made you more healthy like it's a very very tough uh sell um so i think this is genuinely difficult on the other hand uh partly to caroline's point I think it's much easier to have that conversation when you're not talking about the direct health budget. So, for example, and we can argue about whether it's going to be a good preventative policy, people are going to be broadly supportive of the idea that you ban smartphones in schools because it might increase mental health incidences of young people and then they might get really ill and they might need treatment later. People, this was an idea yesterday, people are going to be broadly supportive of the idea that children shouldn't be in bedrooms that are mouldy because it might make them really sick and that's going to cause lots of treatment uh, later. So I think in some ways it's easier to have a preventative conversation when it's not about dividing health budgets than it is um, when it is. Um, but I do think it's politically difficult. I also uh, think that one of the challenges on obesity particularly is that A, it is uh, that, that people broadly still buy that it's a personal responsibility game. They're actually relatively unsympathetic to very, very broad interventionist measures. Um, I personally am of the view that we should be, therefore, massively encouraging the use of drugs that we think might reduce obesity, even if we'd rather people got there through exercise and eating well, because I think it's one of the few ways that we might make a dent in it. Thank you. I'm going to open it up to um, questions from the audience. So um, please put your hand up if you have a question, uh, and please uh, give your name um, when asking your question. Uh, please wait for the microphone. And could I also please ask that they are, in fact, questions and not very long statements. Um, so I'm going to go to the lady at the back to start with. Thank you. Elizabeth Mystery from Protect, the national whistleblowing charity. Whistleblowing is a low or even no cost early warning system. Does the panel agree that listening to whistleblowers and where appropriate acting um, on their concerns raised genuinely would not only improve hospital performance, and I'm not just thinking of the aftermath of Let Be Here, but many other cases, would it not only improve hospital performance, but whisper it, retain staff, boost morale, save lives and money? Thank you, that was a model short question. More yeah. of those, please. Uh, gentlemen here at the front. Uh, I, I can wait for the microphone, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, Adrian Boyle, Royal College of Emergency Medicine. I've been a victim uh, through my career of a number of NHS plans. Uh, every winter they come out and everybody looks at them and they're frequently recycled. How do we get to a point where we actually evaluate and work out what works, what doesn't work, and discard the, the pointless interventions? Because every year we see the same things come around. They didn't work a year ago. Why are they going to work next year? Fantastic. And I'll take one more. The gentleman with the beard just there behind you. Matthew Trimming, just each of you in your own way have sort of talked a little bit about keeping people out of hospital rather than just focusing on what's in hospital. Um, there's obviously a target for virtual wards and two care pathways and 16,000 people by 2024 to be covered by these uh, use of technologies in the home. Just would be interested in the panel's thoughts on whether that's enough, whether it's a bit of Poverty of ambition, you know, where should it be by 2025, 2026, perhaps? 
wonderful. Thank you. Three fantastically uh, thoughtful and concise questions. Um, Lord Bethel, I'm going to come to you first. So on whistleblowing, uh, evaluating and learning from plans and on virtual walks. Um, I'm going to try to be very brief because there are four of us. And so, Curtis, uh, the question, uh, question, very good questions. Sorry for the brevity. I think the NHS has a problem with listening full stop. Uh, I do agree with you that whistleblowers have an important role. My primary focus, though, is on patients. And there we haven't, for some reason, still got through the message that patients need to be listened to. I think the work that Jeremy Hunt did was very good. Uh, Baroness Cumberledge and the Lords, uh, patient safety, commissioner. These are all steps that are important. But the culture change really hasn't changed. And I saw that for myself uh, in the pandemic and the struggle that we had defining symptoms of COVID. And we continue to see it with long COVID, where 2 million people who uh, say that they have the um, um, uh, symptoms of some kind of uh, COVID legacy, uh, we still haven't got the research and the support that, that, that those people deserve. Um, Adrian, in terms of plans, I just don't have an answer for you on that. I think plans are part of life. Um, and uh, I'm sorry that some of them are recycled and we don't do it. I can think of parts of, the, of government which have radically changed in the last 10 years. I'm thinking about the army, for instance, which has pivoted from its old infantry tanks and regiment basis to being now a collection of special forces. That did change a lot and the plans did make a big impact. And I do agree with you that the plans in the NHS don't have the same kind of impact. I slightly wish they had done and we might be further forward if they had, but that's maybe one for you and I to discuss in the pub. Um, in terms of virtual awards, Matthew, I completely agree. Looking forward to our roundtable uh, next month, uh, or now this month. I think that uh, virtual awards um, are, a, are, are a really important and potent metaphor for the push to get people out of hospitals and into the community and into their homes. But on their own, they aren't a solution. And I don't think that you think that they are, and I'm sure you agree with me, but just to reiterate the point, they need to be tooled up with people having agency around their own data, uh, having diagnostics in the home as well as treatment, uh, and having um, beefier um, community uh, treatment and engagement through pharmacists or diagnostic hubs or what have you. In other words, they are a really great symbol of this effort to try to get people who shouldn't necessarily be in hospitals into their communities and into their homes. And that's a big generational push we should all be leaning into uh, uh, right now. Leila, come to you next. Thank you. Um, when, when you asked your question about whistleblowing, it very much took me back to um, one of my very first health policy jobs at the World Health Organization when I worked in patient safety. and. At the time, the chat was all about, you know, what could we learn from the airline industry yeah. about getting people to speak up? Right. And, you know, it's funny to think that um, all these years later, yeah. we're, we're still sitting here having conversations that are a bit like that. So, so, so when I heard that, I thought, goodness, we need to really figure out how to create the culture and create the environment for our people that they genuinely feel able to talk to each other about those concerns. Um, as, to, as to a snappy answer for that, I'm afraid I don't have one at the moment, but, but, I, but I quite agree. Um, in terms of, of the NHS plans, yes, I, I, I too um, spend many a happy Christmas Eve analysing these things to, um, to share them with everyone. And um, 
And yeah, the, the, ideally, we could really put the the ideas of evidence-based medicine a little bit more into the evidence-based policy, as, as you say, Adrian, and perhaps it's incumbent on the think tanks and incumbent on, on people like us to really think about, um, about how we can do that better. But certainly, uh, I think that involving more more people who are involved in actually delivering the plans and trying to make sure that something sensible results from from the various ideas that are percolating feels like something that's made a little bit of progress but i do recognize the, the challenges and, and as for virtual wards yeah it's interesting isn't it to think that in many ways we're, we're led by the legacy infrastructure that the NHS has accumulated over the years. And it's it's a bit of a wrench for us in some ways, I think, to try to figure out how to how to imagine new ways of delivering and give them parity of esteem with with, with the old tried and tested things for which we own lots of you know equipment and um and and systems to deliver. But it feels like like the opportunities are huge, but it's not ever going to be an either or situation. It's going, it's going to be an, an extra tool um, in our tool belt of how to deliver this kind of care. And yeah, the opportunities feel huge. Rachel. Can, can I just ask a question back? What What's an example of a thing you think comes around every year and never works? So we will encourage people to use NHS 111 online. Um, that gets recycled fairly regularly. Um, we will enhance use of the NHS 111 app. That might actually be really helpful, but in, when you're dealing with the, an emergency department which is on fire, you look at it and you just your heart sinks. There will be lots of other things we go through. You know, and that's the problem. People just, their eyes glaze over and they don't adopt these. And, a shorter plan with stuff that we knew that worked would gain more traction. You know, do less but do it better. Yeah. Um, so just on that, I mean, I, I this is partly what I was trying to talk about in my opening remarks. I, I think the NHS has become um, too centralised and too top down. And I also think that because people desperately want to feel like they're in control of something they fundamentally can't control, this is one of the mechanisms by which they do it. And it does seem to me, possibly through ICSs, um, I have some questions about how they're set up, that we need to move control down in the system. I think it's implausible. As, as a conservative, I think we are massively overestimating the ability of a single central body to decide and act. So I think that is one of the, one of the contributors to why we are having um, so many challenges. Yeah. Caroline. Thank you. Um, so three questions there. Thank you. Good questions. Um, first one, the whistleblowers. Yeah, the, the, your question brought me back to my being a junior doctor and examples I saw of people's attempts to do that and the way people uh, get treated. Um, I was also completely horrified by Lucy Letby and I, I found out that the Trust had not just apparently uh, ignored the testimony of seven paediatric consultants, but they also reportedly spent 325000 on per PR in relation to that one case and I think that's um, I think that's absolutely horrific and we certainly need to do better for whistleblowers because if we had done better for whistleblowers one has to ask the question whether or not some of those babies would have survived if we had um, in terms of working out what does and doesn't work I mean I think I think the data is there 
for what does and doesn't work. And I said earlier on that the uh, the there the isn't a uniform effect across the country. Some trusts have short uh, ambulance waiting times. Some trusts have long waiting times, and that's true in, in virtually every me measured metric across across the country. So, I think we need to give managers more autonomy to make decisions and more accountability if they find that they're the ones that are behind and more more um, uh, shouting from the rooftops for the ones who have done it well. Um, and then tech in the home. We've actually got quite a lot of tech in the home now. I mean, many of us in the room will be wearing a Fitbit or a Apple Watch, which can take an EC and take an EEG if you want one. It's an ECG if you want one. Measure your heart rate, measure your oxygen saturations overnight. There's lots of information that we're already collecting that we don't even know we're collecting that could be used to help support um, identification, say sleep apnea or heart arrhythmias and things that you're now wearing all the time. We've got blood pressure monitors that are quite cheap, oxygen saturation monitors you can get for less than £20 on Amazon. These things have huge potential to help. And we've also got yeah. things like um, diabetics can wear pumps now that are constantly measuring and responding to their glucose. So I think d digital and technology is already working quite fast in that, in that place. And what um, we need to do as clinicians is really work out how we can use those um, bits of technology that people already have and carry around to the best advantage that we ha that we can. Thank you. I'll take another round of questions. Uh, lady here in the middle, and then these two gentlemen. Thank you. Um, Sarah Warno, Chief Executive of Asthma in London UK. And my question is around, um, I suppose, the nuance between manager and consultant autonomy and following best practice guidelines. And so the experience from a sort of patient-facing charity, we hear people living with asthma, COPD, other lung conditions, as one example, hospital discharge process, not followed consistently. People aren't very often getting, or too often not getting a good discharge. Readmission rates are massive. COPD, over 40% 90-day readmission, one example. Within primary care and diagnosis, uh, looking after people, so sort of secondary prevention, very poor adherence to NICE guidance. Only about a fifth of people getting the very basic tenets of what good respiratory care looks like. So whilst I completely kind of buy into the need for autonomy and um, you, know, you know consultant freedom, at the same time, and particularly from a patient perspective, too many people feel they're getting a raw deal that's when they end up coming to us because they're not getting very good basic care at any point in the system, including in a hospital setting. Thank you. Uh, gentlemen at the back first, and then here. Uh, thank you, Ben Green. I'm a uh, healthcare management consultant uh, and also an asthmatic. Mm -hmm. um, we've, heard, we've heard that um, there's, there's more funding available, and yet it seems to go to the wrong places. There's more staff than we've ever had before, and yet they're unproductive. There's too many policies which make is unproductive and yet not enough policies to stop babies from dying. Could I ask the somewhat heretical question, hopefully I won't get lynched for, which is that, is the conclusion we should come to that perhaps the state isn't capable of running a hospital? And as a supplementary, perhaps there's no group of human beings that can run an organisation of two million people. Thank you. And then at the front here. Uh, hi, I'm Dan Bellis from GS1 UK. Um, we're the body behind the everyday barcode and in hospitals, things like patient wristbands and patient identifiers. In 2016, there were six NHS trusts that started a programme called Scan for Safety. They're still doing it, that now, 
And each year they they save somewhere in the region about 140, 150,000 hours of clinical time because their scanning process is to make things quicker. So there's less paperwork, fewer errors, lots of money saved and all that boring stuff. The only thing is it's never been rolled out beyond those six NHS trusts since 2016. Why? Thank you. I'm going to go the other way. So Caroline, I'm going to come to you first. So why hasn't that been rolled out? Uh, is the state capable of running hospitals? Uh, and how can you strike the balance between uh, frontline autonomy uh, whilst also ensuring the best practices followed? Well, I think if you allow frontline autonomy, uh, to an extent, you will get better practice because people go into medicine or nursing because they want to look after people and they want to care for people and they want to do that to the very best of their ability. People who are in such professions spend a lot of time on c continuous professional development, trying to learn how best to care for the patients. They think about what they could do to uh, improve the patient care of the patients they've got. What stands in the way of a lot of research is the... Um, We've got a lot of processes around ethics, which, which is right that we've got. But if you've ever tried to look at a form to fill in for any form of research that you might want to do, even very simple research that doesn't involve giving people you know, new found drugs or something, but just simple research. If you can get it through as an audit, people will do it. If you can't get it through as an audit, and I see a doctor nodding in the audience, then basically you don't. Because the paperwork is so, uh, these are clever people, but the paperwork is so unbelievably difficult, unbelievably unwieldy, and unbelievably complicated that it doesn't happen. But I think, I think, in, I think in general, um, there, there, there are greater challenges from from clinicians not being listened to than we have from clinicians being listened to. There will, of course, be examples of both, but I think in balance, listening to clinicians more. Uh, rather than less would be better. Um, other questions were about um, sort of rolling out of a, of a particular type of, of, of um, radiology. I, I'm sorry, I didn't really know which. Barcodes and wristbands. I've seen barcodes and wristbands. I didn't realise that was a particularly non-universal thing. I think it would make a difference. We've um, had a particularly egregious case in um, my constituency last week or the week before where an elderly lady asleep in her bed, dying of um, cancer, was taken from her bed, somewhat confused she was, and taken to somebody's house and put into bed. It wasn't her house. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't her house at all. In fact, what had happened is somebody had been due for... This patient's child had gone home, the son had gone home at 7.30, and at 8 o'clock someone meant to discharge a different patient home. And they, they, they took my constituent instead and tucked her up in this other lady's bed in this other lady's house because the ambulance code used one of those little key lock things to get into this woman's house. And at 8 o'clock the following morning, they realised that this uh, elderly lady on palliative care wasn't in her bed, and indeed this other one was. So I think uh, the more the more um, things you can put in place to ensure... I mean, all these women should have... All the patients should have a wristband with their name on um, to make sure that you know, people don't get the wrong drugs and patients don't get the wrong treatments and get sent to theatre in the wrong place. Um, and, you know, barcode certainly would, uh, would help with that because we, we don't want examples of... Uh, people in the wrong space. Um, we are running a little short time, so Rachel, I might ask you to pick one of those questions to answer. Um, well, thank you for the most libertarian question I've had at conference so far, so I'm going to take that one. Um, uh, so I will say one thing in disagreement and one thing in semi-agreement. It seems to me when you look at various different health systems hospitals, that while it may be true that you cannot run a hospital perfectly, there are other places that seem to run health systems somewhat better than we do. So there is improvement, even if you cannot get 
perfection. Um, what I do think is true, though, which sort of links quite a lot of the questions today, is that we are overestimating how much we can run across the entire NHS. And we have to be realistic about what needs to sit at different levels and too much is sitting up here and not enough is down there. That does not mean, I think, though, an absence of accountability. And it definitely shouldn't mean an absence of transparency and analysis about where trusts are doing well and where they're not, and also making sure that patients have a real say. And, and the final quick thing I'll say on that, because we, we did some focus groups that appeared in the Times this morning, is I think we radically, we are, we are far too um, tentative about the use of patient data and technology because we're terrified that they are going to ha have a huge backlash. And I see no evidence for this. Patients would like this to work better. Thank you. Yeah, and on that point, that's that's why um, Confed has taken over um, understanding patient data, the initiative to really help move that forward. Um, I'll go with the same fun question <laughs> about whether whether um, whether a state can run a hospital, and of, and of course it can't. Um, that that's why that's why we have the various structures that we have been trying to implement over the years, the various reforms that have tried to find the sweet spot. Um, I think we try, you're right, uh, some countries do this better, some do it worse, but I mean, the problem is that every single country has such a, a different context that it is really difficult to compare. But really, I think that my, my eyes are on the ICSs at the moment to see whether we can hit that sweet spot. As I said, at the moment, we're, we're sort of teetering between outputs and outcomes. But if, if, if we can get the governments to, and NHS England and whoever it may be to feel comfortable with sufficient autonomy um, at a local level that they can really focus on the outcomes and be able to do it in a way that offers appropriate levels of public accountability in this context where there's a huge amount of proportional spending on, on the NHS. So it's unrealistic to, to assume that they would um, cede control completely. Then hopefully that sweet spot can be found, but I think we're still looking for it. And then final word of Lord Butler. Um, I'm gonna try and bridge between those two key questions around innovation and um, who, who runs the NHS. Uh, and I do agree with Leila. Of course, uh, hospitals aren't run by the state. They do have their own government model and there is a degree of autonomy there, but, 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 but not completely. I think there's a genuine dilemma. I genuinely don't know the answer to it is do you accelerate the rate of innovation by having more um, uh, ubiquity, more consistency, more guidance across the whole system? So a sensible idea, like a barcode wristband, is driven somehow through the system. Or do you have to liberate everyone to be able to have more autonomy, more flexibility, to be able to make judgments that are aligned with the interests of the institution and maybe not necessarily um, uh, ubiquity, uh, and that's the way to do innovation. What I do know is that the rate of innovation over the next 10 or 20 years is going to be incredibly high. We're going to see um, uh, the benefits of big data, algorithms, genomics. We're going to see uh, care and diagnostics driven into the home uh, and into the community. We're going to see um, a what much wider variety of people in, got engaged in what was previously clinical discipline. So we're going to see therapists and physios and pharmacists uh, engaged much more. There's going to be a lot going on. And my, for my money, I can't see how you could do that from uh, NHS headquarters in Leeds or by ministerial diktat from the top. 
I think you've got to let it go a bit or we just won't be able to adapt to the pace of innovation required to uh, meet our, our, our the health needs of the nation. Thank you. Uh, and with that, I'm going to bring the event to a close. Uh, for those who'd like to learn more about how to improve the performance of hospitals, please do read Rachel's excellent report uh, from earlier in the year. For those who'd like to find out more about the options for moving to different funding models from the NHS, we put out an excellent report uh, last week looking at uh, social insurance and charging for appointments that is worth reading. Uh, and if you're interested in more events on health, and we have many events coming up, uh, we have an event tomorrow morning here at 10.45, looking at how government obesity policy can uh, boost uh, health and the economy. Uh, so until then, um, thank you very much for attending and please join me in thanking all of our panelists for their excellent contributions today. Thank you.